0: When, when folks say d- Black folks vote Democratic um, consistently and in large numbers, and the party's moving left, they combine those two realities and say, well, Black folks must be moving left too. But in actuality, White Democrats are moving left. Black voters are basically right around the center where they've always been. Show me the pro-Civil Rights Party, that's the party that gets my vote. I think Black voters will continue to vote for the pragmatic candidate, the one that's viable and can win a general election and, uh, and not, chase, um, not chase progressive dreams uh, around you know, fundamental restructuring of our society because the Black experience suggests that, that it's not going to happen. And when that fundamental restructuring does happen, it, we are often still kind of left behind or violence against our communities precedes these fundamental transformations.
1: Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ong-Whaley.
2: And I'm Kyle Kondik.
1: Joining us for this episode is Ted Johnson. He's a senior fellow at New America, leading its flagship U.S. at 250 initiative, marking the nation's semi-quincentennial. And he's also a contributing columnist at The Washington Post. Uh, He's also a contributing author to our 2022 post-election book, The Red Ripple, writing about Black voter behavior. Thank you so much for joining us, Ted.
0: Thanks for having me. Always good to be here.
1: Before we get into talking about uh, your, uh, your contribution to the Red Ripple, um, I want to talk to you about something a little bit more broadly. Um, you've written um, a book and spoken extensively about how racism remains an existential threat to American democracy. Um, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to start by talking about the ways in which racism continues to threaten the United States. And share a little bit about the work you're doing, especially around the U.S. at 250 initiative for moving the country towards healing, um, especially as we approach the nation's semi-quincentennial.
0: Yeah, um, absolutely. And so, you know, for me, race is um, the, the best way to identify flaws in the way our nation is structured um, economically, um, the way our democracy is put together. And so whereas racism used to be the thing, uh, it used to be. and and a kind of racial hatred you know overt explicit oppression based on people's racial or ethnic groups now the the kind of racism that's plaguing the country is less that and more the sort that says um we've overcome our demons and um the you know whatever racial disparities that are resulting from the way our society is structured is just because some groups don't work as hard as others that kind of racism which takes structural outcomes and then labels those outcomes as the result of personal deficiencies or even cultural or biological deficiencies, that's the kind that I think threatens the promise of our country. The, the promise for me is the second paragraph of the declaration that we're all created equal, that we have unalienable rights among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that government derives its just powers from the consent of the governed. Racism prohibits all of those things from ever becoming true. And so to the extent we leave structural racism unaddressed, that is the, how far we will fall short of the nation we profess to, to be. And so um, addressing racial inequalities isn't just a, a moral issue. Um, it, it is actually the best way to achieve the more perfect union is by noting where racial disparities exist and then addressing those things, not to ensure equal outcomes across a range of factors, but to ensure equal opportunity, which is uh, something the nation prides itself on
2: this was just in the news recently cuz we just reached i think it was the 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 third anniversary of the death of george floyd and sort of the reckoning that we had in in 2020 over you know racial inequities in policing that's that sort of uh, important topic kind of wonder like as, so if we're thinking about this like wh- where do you think we are you know 3 years after that and there was this kind of bubbling up of of uh Reform at that time, and maybe now there's sort of more kind of a focus back on sort of the more hard on crime messaging. Like, where just where do you think those sorts of uh, policy arguments, I guess, over policing are right now?
0: Yeah, so I fear we've kind of fallen back to the status quo, which is it's something that both sides will debate, but um, there's probably not going to be much action taken on it unless some other catastrophe happens, or unless um, you know whoever wins the presidential election of 24. Uh, determines that this would be a good bipartisan win because criminal justice is one of the few places where Congress has been able to squeak out some bipartisan victories. Um, I will say, and this sort of connects to the question of, of the semi-quincentennial when the country turns um, 250 years old in 2026, um, that the, the, there was a moment after George Floyd's murder where I thought the nation was really serious uh, about rethinking how it was sort of put together. Um, there was the COVID pandemic that had everyone in their homes. There was uh, curfews and the economy was was down. People were socially isolated. And then you have Ahmaud Arbery and um, Breonna Taylor and, uh, and George Floyd all killed publicly within a few months of each other, at least the videos coming out or the audio coming out. And you have a presidential election happening. And so that summer of 2020, when there are these protests happening in every state in the union for every week of the summer essentially um i thought we had a moment there and then in the following presidential election we had the highest turnout in 120 years you know 60 years before the voting rights act i thought we were on to something um only to find out that we're sort of back to politics as usual Uh, i hope that the 250th anniversary of the country in 2026 is an inflection point for us, where we can try to recapture some of that energy from the the summer of 2020. But um, um, it, when it comes to criminal justice reform, when it comes to both sides trying to work together to create, you know, a police force that's more uh, respectful and responsive to the public, and and um, um, a public that's more uh, willing to work with police because of some of the their their abuses of power have been um, put in check, uh, then I, you know, if we can recapture that, we've got something. Um, if it, right now it doesn't look like that's on the horizon and uh, and it's too bad, because I think the vast majority of Americans would like to see some action on that front, as, as well as many others, abortion, gun control, et cetera.
1: You've written about some of the divergence between the Republican and Democratic Party and, and Republican voters and Democratic voters on the issue of race. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about why we're seeing those changes occur and, and, and how we're seeing the divergence and differences between um, Republican and Democratic voters on the issues of race.
0: Yeah. And, you know, since essentially since the 15th Amendment was ratified in 1870, um, Black folks that could vote have almost always voted for the same party and and large, you know, 80, 90 percent type numbers since 1870 with a. With a a slight pause in the 20s and 30s for reasons I'll explain in, in just a second. So the 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 idea that, that Black voting behavior has been largely uniform for the last 150 years is correct. And that's because the parties have basically organized themselves where there's one party that is pro-civil rights and another party that is explicitly anti-civil rights, or quiet on the matter altogether, and, and they're uh, by assigned an anti position based on being the opposite of of the party that's in the pro position. So that used to be the party of Lincoln, the Republican Party, and we know um, from the 18, late 1860s when Confederate states were um, applying for readmission to the Union, um, all the way through at least the Compromise of 1877 black folks were black men were voting in large numbers turnout rates extremely high and voting in overwhelming fashion for republican candidates to include black republicans that um finally made their way into congress uh, the largest number of black republicans ever in congress was um I believe seven in 1877 um and you know right when the compromise of, of 1877 takes place um and so the uniform voting behavior we've seen all the way through to the Civil Rights Act of Civil Rights Movement in the 60s, especially all the way through to today, is a large group of Americans voting for the party that is that supports federal protections of the civil rights that group has fought to uh, acquire for centuries. Um, that used to be Republicans. Jim Crow comes along and um, more than 90% of Black folks are living in the South, so from the you know 1880s through to the 1960s, the vast majority of Black folks in this nation are unable to to vote because of state level oppressive measures measures around voting. Even as the Great Migration takes place, um, a lot of those voters, uh, Black voters, are still sort of Republican because of the Lincoln legacy. But as they begin moving to the northern states, they two things happen. One, they get the ability to vote because those Jim Crow laws aren't enforced in the same way. And local candidates in the North, local Democrats in the North, begin making appeals to black voters because they recognize they can win elections by um, appealing to these newly enfranchised voters. And the Democrats lean deeply into that position, um, which is basically secured by uh, Lyndon Johnson signing the Voting Rights Act of of 65, the Civil Rights Act of 64. And uh, and so that's why we continue to see a very lopsided uh, voting behavior within black America, within black America, the incentives have always been the same. The behavior has always been the same. The only thing that's really changed is where the parties fall out on this question of, of civil rights. And that has dictated the vast majority of how black folks vote.
2: Black voters in 2022, you know, continue to be a pretty overwhelmingly democratic constituency. Although, you know, there was some erosion, um, uh, t- you know, t- to some degree, there was uh um, we just had uh, recently on our, on the podcast an uh, uh, analyst from a Catalyst Democratic firm that does a really good um, post election voting report, and um, I'm, I'm looking at their numbers right now. 2020 president uh, um, black voters were 91 uh, nine of the two party vote for for uh, for Democrats, and then in 2022 it was they have it as 88 to 12. So so you know a little bit of a decline there. Um, how how do you interpret this, and also to the extent that there are black voters who are voting Republican, do they sort of profile in a certain kind of, kind of way?
0: Mm. Yeah, this is, that's a good question. Um, so, well, one is between 1968 and 2004, about 11 and a half percent, on average, black folks voted for the Republican presidential candidate, whether it was a, a nominee or whether it was the, a candidate or the incumbent. Um, and so when Barack Obama comes on the sh- scene, McCain only gets 4% of, of black voters in 2008. And Romney only gets, I want to say, 6 or 7% of black voters in 2012. And so when Trump comes along in 2016 and gets 7%, 8%, um, 8%, or maybe about, I guess around 7 or so percent, he about matched Romney, and then gets up to an 8-ish, 9-ish percent in 2000. Uh, 2020, it looks like Republicans have doubled their black support between 2008 and 2016 from Mm -hmm. the four McCain got to the eight in percent, uh, you know, in in decimal number that Trump got. But what we're really seeing is Republicans underperforming their historical average pre-Obama. And so the increase we've seen in the last decade, in my view, is more of a snapback to black folks who always vote Republican, who couldn't bring themselves to vote against the first black president. Now reinserting themselves into the sort of traditional stratifications within black America and voting Republican. Um, So so that's that's how how I sort of read what's happened Uh, on the congressional piece. Congress has always, congressional candidates have almost always done better than presidential candidates among, Republican congressional candidates have done better than um, Republican presidential candidates with Black voters. So it doesn't surprise me that about 12 or so percent of Black folks voted for a Republican candidate in the midterms. And that's, uh, that is, that is again, back to historical norms. So we're basically right back to where we started pre-Obama. Um, and so going forward, what does this mean? Uh, so one, Black conservatives, do not uniformly vote for Black Republican or for Republicans. Period. No matter their race, in the same way that white conservatives are far more likely to vote for Republicans, so that's one. That Black conservatives are voting for Democrats, not Republicans. So then, who are Black Republicans? And I think that it falls into uh, like three big categories. One are folks who are just conservative and um, and carry the Republican brand because that's what their grandparents and great grandparents did. And so they've just it's just sort of their family thing is to be religious, fiscal conservatives, and we never left the Republican Party, even though it left us. And that's a very small number. There's another group of folks that are basically opportunists. And these are folks who say, look, Republican Party has a race problem. They're being accused of being racist. And so if I am black and willing to run under the brand, um, I will be exceptional. I will be sort of the, the anomaly. And that gets me more attention, more money, more people will trot me out to show how the party's not racist. And that ups my name recognition, my brand, the whole nine. So these people see a quicker path to office through the Republican lane than through the Democratic one. Um, and then some folks, to be honest with you, are just grifters. And these are different from the opportunists. Opportunists are people who actually want to serve the public, actually want to be in office. And the Republican line is shorter than the Democratic line for black uh, applicants or aspirants. The grifters are the folks who are doing this just as pure political or economic play. They want to make money. So a, they want to get on Fox News. They want to sell books. Uh, and so those folks are basically um, playing out a caricature of the black Republican in hopes of providing some race cover for the party, not out of any sense of principle, but out of, you know, uh, essentially trying to create more opportunity for themselves. Uh, And so those are the three big buckets. And the first one is the one if played out with a charismatic figure in a principled way, could actually attract, I think, one in five black voters in the right political moment. But um, that Character that person is not on the horizon as I see it, and the moment is not right um, for even such a person, if they did exist, to start winning over large numbers of black folks. You
2: know, you, you mentioned in the in the chapter that while there really aren't that many, you know, black Republicans in ele- in high elected office, there are you know a few more than there used to be, and I guess probably the most prominent or one of the most prominent is Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who recently announced his presidential bid. Um, how do you assess Tim Scott and and his ultimately maybe his his uh, uh, the the role he play in this race or his, you know, his chances of winning.
0: Yeah. I think one is, I mean, the, the biggest plus for Tim Scott is that he's likable the guy he's just a likable guy. And, um, because he's black, because he's likable, because he's, um, he wears his, his religion on his sleeve. He's very uh, out front with his Christianity that makes for a very attractive candidate in the traditional conservative mold. Um, he cares lots about, uh, um, economic opportunity. He cares lots about school choice for parents. I mean, these are traditional positions for, for conservatives to take. Um, so so I think there was a lane for him pre-Trump. Post-Trump, I don't know if the Republican base has an appetite for the kind of conservatism that Tim Scott is offering, which is essentially an updated version of, the, of George Bush's compassionate conservatism. Um, but in the shadow of Trumpism, what does that even look like how can you be tough on the border how can you be tough against these social justice warriors and compassionate um today in in the trump world compassion is actually weakness and so the thing that makes tim scott a very attractive candidate um, is also the thing that makes it extremely difficult for him to emerge in a, a, a Trump-dominated field, or party, and, and uh, a Trump-dominated uh, primary field. So I actually don't think he's got a very good chance of, of winning at all. I think if the Tim Scott of summer t- 2016 had stayed consistent and Trump had lost to Hillary Clinton in 2016... Tim Scott would have been a pretty formidable 2020 candidate, but Tim Scott uh, was a good Republican um, soldier during the Trump years. And uh, and I think that um, undermined his appeal to the diverse coalition he could have attracted, if not for the fact that he was such a good Republican during the Trump years. So I think my, my, my personal view is that Tim Scott is running to show his fundraising appeal his, the the diversity of his appeal not just along race factors, maybe not even particularly along race factors, but along re- Republican traditional Republican voters appealing to those who suburban voters in particular who might be turned off by Trump, um, and he appeals to evangelicals. Um, and so, and, he, and he's, this is not going to be a vice president who's measuring the drapes while the president is doing the job. He, this isn't, I think he would be quite happy being vice president. So I think he's running to, to show how formidable he'll be as a number two. And um, the likelihood of some sunlight squeaking down a path where he could make it to the White House, I think it's very, 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 very low. And even if that path opens, his ability to master it and, and definitely navigate that very thin line. I, I'm just not sure if he's got that either. So um, that, that's sort of my, my read of, uh, of Scott's campaign and, and its future.
1: You've already spoken a little bit about how few Black members of Congress there are. Um, and looking at state legislatures as well, um, you know, it, it's been very difficult for women, Black legislators, and, and other historically minoritized groups to really gain traction. What do you see as a way for for really thinking through how we train, recruit and encourage yet more, more, more black candidates to run for office?
0: This Congress is the most diverse ever um, in terms of the number of people of color. I think the number of women, the number of LGBTQ folks, the number of Gen Z, it's just got everything. The problem is it's all happening like on one side of the aisle. So, you know, the vast majority of people of color in Congress today are Democrats um, and the Gen Z, Gen Z folks are Democrats Um I think all but one of the folks who identify openly identify as lbgtq are are democrats um maybe maybe there's one other uh so so diversity the congress is getting more diverse uh it's just happening on one side one side and so for me the question is how can republicans do a better job how can they match the um what, how, what the democrats are doing and so i think it's it's very a very simple but difficult to do two things the first thing is to Um, talk more about the policies that align to the views of more Americans and less about those that are meant to just explicitly divide us and cause folks to hate others. And so if everything is about how teaching black history in school is no good, how um, if you talk about LGBTQ marriage or lifestyle or anything in a classroom it's grooming these are these may be good for culture war battles and and getting the base riled up but it's very poor for the brand because it's built on hating other things other people and not on what they um in particular believe in but if they talked about things like education school choice um small business assistance from the government that that's actually applied in a, a colorblind way um uh, strong federal protections of people's rights and equality. They do that for religious liberty, but not so much for civil rights. It's sort of the same question about the role of the federal government. If they were to talk more about these issues, they find that there are quite a few people of color who agree with them. Um, they just don't want to be lapped, you know, sort of connected to all the xenophobia and racism and classism and stuff that's connected to the Republican Party. So I think that the two things they have to do are find candidates that are charismatic, appealing, um good leaders, a, a track record of, of inclusion that also happen to be conservatives and and spotlight them, which is I think why Tim Scott is able to get such as much money as he's been able to get from from funders. Um, so that's one folks need examples and two they have to explicitly disavow some of the, the more hateful and exclusive rhetoric that that is put out maybe even by the, the guy you know the the um, guy leading the party, you know the standard bearer in, in Trump. Um, without those two things, policy questions alone are not going to be enough to diversify the Republican side. Which means a logjam is going to occur on the Democratic side, which is going to cut off, uh, cut out people um, who would otherwise make great candidates, but can't seem to get through the, you know, the, the horde of folks that are waiting their turn to run for office in the various uh, states and localities.
2: It is interesting that that you know on the Democratic side. I mean, you mentioned that that you know while Black voters in general are you know highly Democratic identifying group that ideologically black voters are not necessarily collectively seen as sort of the most liberal slash progressive wing of the Democratic Party. But it's interesting that, you know, black voters in South Carolina in some way sort of saved Joe Biden's uh, presidency or or presidential campaign. And now there's this, um, you know, this change to the, the Democratic primary calendar in which they want South Carolina to be the leadoff state, whether it actually is that sort of, I think is probably still a little bit in flux. But um, what was your you know, what was your uh, reaction to that? And, you know, of course, we we, the old system is that you had Iowa and New Hampshire as the first two states, which, of course, are extremely white states. Right.
0: Yeah, I wasn't surprised at all. I, I knew I mean, just the polling suggested that folks like Buttigieg, Klobuchar. Uh, Sanders, uh, maybe not so much Sanders. Sanders did okay with black voters, but Klobuchar, Buttigieg, uh, Warren came on late, but even Kamala Harris and Cory Booker were not able to win over black voters. And again, especially from the Democratic primary, the vast majority of black voters um, are in the Southern states. And so in places like Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, the majority of Democratic primary voters in those states are actually black folks. And those black folks are not Bernie Sanders progressives. They're not um, Democratic socialists—they're quite moderate, um, center-left at best on on most issues, or you know, most issues, and center-right on probably a few around education, um, uh, small business, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So, um, so I wasn't surprised at all that Biden's campaign was rescued in South Carolina, um, or that he performed—he didn't perform as well in, in Iowa and New Hampshire. He just wasn't the darling of the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, which is overwhelmingly white. Uh, and so um, uh, so when, when folks say D- Black folks vote Democratic um, consistently and in large numbers and the party's moving left, they combine those two realities and say, well, Black folks must be moving left, too but in actuality white democrats are moving left black voters are basically right around the center where they've always been show me the pro civil rights party that's the party that gets my vote i think for the foreseeable future that's probably going to be the dance the party has to navigate anyone who wants to be the na- the nominee is going to have to appeal to black moderates and white progressives in order to emerge from the primary and have a and you know have a shot at the general election so uh, i don't think that Part of the party has changed, and I don't think 2024 certainly, but even 2028, I don't think that um, I think Black voters will continue to vote for the pragmatic candidate, the one that's viable and can win a general election, and uh, and not chase um, not chase progressive dreams um, around you know fundamental restructuring of our society because the Black experience suggests that that it's not going to happen, and when that fundamental restructuring does happen. Um, We are often still kind of left behind or violence against our communities precedes these fundamental transformations. So those become less appealing given uh, given the nation's history on how they come about.
1: It seems that Democrats also shouldn't be taking black voters for granted. What more should the Democratic Party be doing to really deliver on the promises of civil rights?
0: There's um, there's a great book out. um, It's called The Anger Gap. That's the name of the book. And and um, the author basically he's a scholar at UC Irvine, I believe. He basically says that um, when it comes to black voters, anger is not the way to get them to turn out to support candidates. You have to inspire them whereas for white voters, getting them angry actually is a mobilizing um, electoral strategy. So the Democratic Party, one, is going to have to keep uh, mobilization efforts, activation efforts, all that stuff in place between elections and not just try to ramp up in the lead up to elections. Um, They're going to have to nominate candidates that are pragmatic, and um, don't make campaign prom- promises about large, massive structural reforms that they're not going to be able to, to deliver on in our hyperpartisan partisan environment. And um, three, they need to, uh, folks should show how they're doing battle against those you know entities at the local and state level that are trying to make voting more difficult for some communities. So it's sort of a um, constant engagement, compelling, run compelling figures, use the inspiration of those compelling figures to get folks to the polls and not not the anger play um and you know give folks uh, a reason to support them by showing we're willing to do battle with you even when an election's not um you know not imminent or not in the in the near term future we're, we're willing to do battle in the year after an election to ensure that three years from now, people can participate in the next presidential or the next midterm of the following year um, at a higher rate. So that's the, that's the best they can do. I mean, the policy argument is one that they've had the luxury of not really having to engage with Republicans when it comes to Black voters because of how prominent the civil rights question is for, for Black voters. And as long as the, this current version of the Republican Party doesn't change its stance, all the other policy questions around climate or energy or taxes, et cetera, start to fall off or at least take a take a backseat to the bigger issue of voting rights, you know, um, equal protection under the law.
1: Ted Johnson, Senior Advisor at New America. Thank you so much for joining us on Politics is Everything. And thank you so much for contributing once again to our post-election book this year. It's called The Red Ripple, the 2022 Midterm Elections and What They Mean for 2024. We appreciate your insights on Black voter behavior, and also for discussing what Black Americans want and need from both political parties and from our political system in order to achieve the ideal set out in the Declaration of Independence.
0: Thank you, always happy to be here and, and uh, looking forward to the next time.
1: Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics Is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faze. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at Center Number 4 Politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time.